Welcome to The S Factor. Now here's your host, Chuck Shazer. Welcome to another exciting edition of the S Factor. I'm your host, Chuck Shazer of ScienceAnimated.net. And if you're new to the show, welcome aboard. The S stands for science. You can catch me here the first Saturday of the month at 1 o'clock on Cruise 92.1 WVLT and also on your favorite podcasting service. Just type in the S Factor podcast and you'll see me pop right up. So... Make yourself at home. Welcome aboard my starship. We're going to cruise around the solar system. Go into interstellar space a little bit. Talk about all things terrestrial and celestial right here on the S-Factor. Let's go to our first story here today from space.com. This sounds like something from a science fiction movie. Alien organisms could hitch a ride on our spacecraft and contaminate Earth, scientists warn. The growing demand for space exploration is increasing the chances of alien organisms invading Earth and of Earth-based organisms invading other planets, scientists have argued in a new paper. The researchers point to humanity's record of moving species to new environments on Earth where those organisms can become invasive and harm the native species. They say such behavior suggests the same could happen with alien life from another planet contaminating Earth and vice versa, according to the paper published November 17th in the journal Bioscience. The search for life beyond our world is an exciting endeavor that could yield an enormous discovery in the not-too-distant future. Lead author Anthony Riccardi, a professor of invasion biology at McGill University in Montreal, told Live Science in an email. However, in the face of increasing space missions, including those intended to return samples to Earth, it is crucial to reduce the risk of biological contamination in both directions. Cardi and his colleagues used the paper to call for more collaborative studies between, between astrobiologists searching for extraterrestrial life and invasion biologists studying invasive species on Earth. We can only speculate on what kinds of organisms might be encountered if astrobiologists were to find life, Riccardi said. The most plausible life forms would be microbial, and probably resemble bacteria. You know, I've often thought about this. As we're gearing up and getting excited to send human beings to Mars and to colonize Mars, to colonize the moon, you know, dreams of space colonization have been floating around people's mind since 1969 and beyond when we landed on the moon. If you asked someone back then, they probably would have told you that by the year 2020, if you ask them, what do you think 2020 will be like? Or 2021? They will probably say, oh my goodness, I mean, we'll have city dome cities on, on the moon by then. We'll probably be inhabiting two or three planets by then. But as we find out more about space, a lot of thought and effort has to go into protecting the astronauts and the first settlers that are going to be, that are going to be traveling around our solar system in such a way with colonization in mind. Now, it goes on to say the scientists consider the risk of interplanetary contamination to be extremely low, partly because the harsh conditions of outer space make it difficult for potential hitchhiking organisms to survive a ride on the outside of a human spacecraft. That's very true, actually. Think about their re-entry into the Earth. How unbelievably hot it gets. You know, they have those tiles on the craft to insulate it from that. 
intense heat. Now it says, however, we should still be cautious of interplanetary contamination based on the negative impacts that invasive species have had on Earth, according to Riccardi. Humans have damaged ecosystems around the world by allowing organisms to invade new environments they've, they'd never reach naturally. For example, a fungus from South Africa was introduced to Australia in unknown circumstances and is taking over the country's native eucalyptus trees, stunting their growth and sometimes killing them. Now, I'm from the Northeast. If you're listening to this on Cruise 92.1 WVLT and you're from Vineland, you're from the South Jersey area, Philadelphia. But if you're listening to me on a podcast, you can be literally anywhere in the world. What we have here on the East Coast right now is what they call these Asian lady beetles. And I was reading up on those and they're a problem for some people in the area here. And they are an invasive species. They were brought around to control the population of another bug species. And now here we have too many of these Asian lady beetles, beetles and they look very much like the very harmless and ladybug that we find so cute. And, you know, we've used ladybugs in so many, you know, whether it's animations and all kinds of things and patterns and, and they're always a cute little insect. They, they really are quite innocent, but this lady Asian beetle, you know, if you, if you smash it, it smells it, they could really invade people's homes. I've seen some unbelievable photos of that. So it's the same kind of thing they're talking about here. Introducing an invasive species or a new species to a geographic location where they never would have reached there naturally. And they really can upset things in the ecosystem. Just like it's talking about this fungus from South Africa that was uh, introduced to Australia and how it messed up the eucalyptus trees. Now, the researchers noted that insular ecosystems that evolve in geographical isolation, such as on islands and in countries like Australia, are particularly vulnerable to invasive species because the native wildlife in those places hasn't evolved adaptations to deal with such invaders. Biological invasions have often been devastating for the plants and animals in these systems, Riccardi said. We argue that planets and moons potentially containing life should be treated as if they were in solar systems. Now we're talking about microbial life. We're not talking about something the size of the average insect that we know about, that, that we know of. This is microbial bacteria. These things that could hitchhike on board a spacecraft. And you know, it doesn't have to be actually just on the spacecraft. This could be something that is on the material inside the spacecraft. Maybe it's inside. I remember watching Star Trek and they would have these decontamination chambers that they would go through before they came aboard the Enterprise. We may actually have to develop something very similar to that when we go to Mars and we actually start colonizing our solar system. For evidence of interplanetary contamination, the researchers cited the Israeli spacecraft that crashed into the moon in 2019 while carrying thousands of tardigrades. And I talked about the tardigrades on the S-Factor here, microscopic animals that can survive extreme conditions including the vacuum of space. So they are really well adapted to space travel, those little tardigrades. Now, 2021 study published in the journal Astrobiology concluded that the creatures probably wouldn't survive the impact of a lunar crash, but that the incident demonstrates the potential for biological spills. Space agencies such as NASA have long been aware of the potential risks of biological contamination, and planetary protection policies have been in place since the 1960s. However, unprecedented risks are posed by a new era of space exploration, aimed at targeting areas most likely to contain life, Riccardi said. 
This includes the rise in private space exploration companies such as SpaceX that are making space more accessible, according to the paper. SpaceX, for example, aims to travel to Mars and beyond with its SpaceX Starship program, as we've covered many times on the S-Factor. The researchers suggest increasing biosecurity protocols associated with space travel, focusing on the early detection of potential biological contaminants and developing plans for a rapid response to any such detections. Planets and moons have always exchanged material via meteorites, but human space exploration could accelerate contamination, said Jennifer Wattsworth, an astrobiologist at Lutheran University of Applied Sciences and Arts in Switzerland. The new paper is an excellent overview of the current and continuous need for strict and up-to-date planetary protection rules, Wadsworth said. One major issue is the current planetary protection guidelines are not mandatory, she told Life Science. The line between exploration and conservation is a thin one, she said. One shouldn't be abandoned at the cost of the other, but both require careful consideration and, most importantly, compliance. You know, in America, we aren't the only country that has these visions of colonization. I would say we have, specifically speaking, the two billionaires that we have that are heavy into this, as you guys know, Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos. You know, one of my favorites, Captain Kirk, just went to space not too long ago, not too many weeks ago, on Blue Origin. So they are kind of challenging each other in a way to see who can get the furthest in space, who can get the bases on the moon first, who can accomplish these extraordinary feats for humankind. It's going to be a very exciting time. This is very, very cool stuff. What do you think about all this? What do you think about space exploration and traveling and colonizing our solar system? The S Factor here on Cruise 92.1 WVLT is pre-recorded. It's a new show every month, but it is pre-recorded. So I don't have calls, but I do respond to email. So if you have a question or comment about any of these stories I'm going to cover today, contact me at info at scienceanimated.net. That's info at scienceanimated.net. We're going to take a quick break. Thank you for joining me today on the S Factor. You can check me out here the first Saturday of the month at 1 o'clock on Cruising 92.1 WVLT and anytime at scienceanimated.net. And your favorite podcasting service. I'm on Apple. I'm on Amazon Prime Podcast. I'm on I'm on Google Podcast. I'm on practically every podcasting service that's out there. So check me out. Just type in the S Factor Podcast and you will find me there. We will be right back. Would you like to get into better shape, lose weight, have more energy, be toned, be stronger, be faster, have better endurance? Well, there's a solution. Tawny Fit. Certified personal trainer Tawny Basil is the owner of Tawny Fit. And having Tawny Basil as your personal trainer can help you get the results you're looking for. Now, whether you want to go to a gym with Tawny Basil and have her by your side showing you the right way to do the exercises, coming up with the perfect plan for you with your goals in mind, with your personal goals in mind, that's one way you can do it. Also, if you don't want to leave the home, you can do training virtually with Tawny Basil. She will. She has virtual sessions, so you don't have to leave the comfort of your home. And now she also has a facility where you can come to her in a little private gym, and you can get your workout in that way. So contact Tawny Basil at tawnyfit at gmail.com. That's tawnyfit 
at gmail.com for rates. And I think you had an offer, by the way, for the S-Factor folks, didn't you? With a free session if they mentioned the show? Absolutely. If we don't want to forget that. mention the show, you get a free session. Um, you can reach me at 609-674-8077. Text ready. That's right, folks. I'll give you that number one more time. If you want to contact Tawny Basil, text her the message ready to 609 609- 674-8077 or email Tawny. Her email address is tawnyfit at gmail.com. bumper music as always welcome back to the s factor i'm your host chuck chaser the show is all about science you can catch me here the first saturday of the month at one o'clock on cruise 92.1 wvlt and anytime at scienceanimated.net just a quick reminder don't forget to support the show support the efforts put here to get the word out about science education by supporting the show via buying the Science Animated The Human Body DVD or stream. It's a movie based on the human body. It's an action-adventure. It's an educational movie unlike anything you've ever seen before. Super unique. That's available at scienceanimated.net. i got a holiday special going on right now with the stream or the DVD. If you're old school, there's plenty of DVDs still. Give a gift this year that's, that's quite different. And you never know. It could just ignite a spark and that young person in your life, and get them really interested in science. Really cool stuff there. Check it out, scienceanimated.net. Now, as I look through the very, uh, to me, what I think is the most interesting science news bits, like I'll run some of these by my wife. And this next story, she looked at me, really couldn't believe this next headline. And you'll see why. Ants vomit in each other's mouths to form social bonds. Sometimes topics can be quite disgusting. Now, ants have social networks just like humans do, but instead of exchanging information through posts and comments, they vomit into each other's mouths. (laughs) Most insects have a foregut, a midgut, and a hindgut. However, for social insects, the foregut has become sort of a social stomach, said Andrea LaBeouf, an assistant professor and leader of the Laboratory of Social Fluids at the University of Freiburg in Switzerland. Contacts of the midgut and hidgut are digested while contents of the foregut are meant to be shared, said LaBeouf, lead author of a new study describing these findings. Trophallaxis, or the act of regurgitating food into another organism's mouth, is very common in highly social species like ants. 
During a trophallastics event, nutrients and proteins are passed from one individual's stomach to another's, and through a series of exchanges, the ants create a social circulatory system that connects each member of the colony to everyone else, LaBeouf said. Aren't you really glad when it comes to Homo sapiens we don't do this? Like, I may pick up some lunch and offer something to a fellow co-worker, but you're not going to vomit on them <laughs> as an offering. You know, I'm, I'm really glad we don't do that as human, <laughs> as human beings. That would be quite disgusting. Now, carpenter ants constantly pass these nutrients to one another in this way. If you look in, at one colony in a single minute, you might see 20 triphylaxic events. LaBeouf told Live Science, an ant colony might hold at least thousands of ants. About five years ago, we published a paper categorizing the fact that when ants do triphylaxics, they aren't just passing external food, LaBeouf said. Referring to a 2016 report in the journal eLife, they are passing out hormones, nestmate recognition cues, small RNAs, and all sorts of things. So by vomiting into each other's mouths, that's so disgusting, ants aren't simply exchanging nutrients, the study authors wrote. Instead, the ants are creating a digestive social network in which energy and information circulate constantly throughout the colony to be collected by the individuals that need these resources. This is much how, like, your brain can secrete a hormone and pass it to your circulatory system, and it would eventually reach your liver. LaBeouf thinks of a colony of ants not as a collection of individual ants, but instead as a, a colonial superorganism, where the colony essentially functions as if it were a body, much like how a body has tissues and organs that perform jobs in support of a common goal. Groups of ants with different jobs can be thought of as the tissues and organs of the superorganism. The foragers gather food, the nurses take care of the young, the workers dig tunnels, etc. Organs use the circulatory system to pass around much more than food, so it is possible that the social circulatory system does more as well. And in the insect world, you have all of these social structures. You have all of the, they all have their own job. I remember when I was in college, I did a, a, a paper on, a research paper on honeybees. And you have the drone honeybees. They're the, the workers that go out and gather the nectar. You know, and as they're doing things, as they're gathering nectar, they don't realize that they're pollinating flowers. And then when they do that, that's how we have the variety of food that we have. If, if the flowers weren't pollinated, there are many fruits and vegetables we wouldn't have. We would be stuck with like root vegetables mostly. So honeybees are, are incredible. That's why when we had that colony collapse disorder that was going around, I would say it was a hot topic about 10 or so years ago. It was very concerning because honeybees are responsible for so much of our food supply. We need them. So anyway, when I did this research paper in college, I learned a lot about the honeybee. And they all have their own jobs. You know, the drones are the workers. You know, when, when winter comes around, the drones are kind of closed out of the nest. It's kind of sad. And they just fly around until they die, essentially. The queen bee and the eggs are what is in the nest or in the hive. And when the next season comes around, those eggs mature, mature and they become the new drones. And the cycle just starts over and over again. Now, ants are, are, are kind of like this, of course. They all have their own jobs. And I guess you could look at it as a super organism, for sure. Now, to help us understand why ants share these fluids, we explored whether the proteins they exchange are linked to an individual's role in the colony or the colony's life cycle. Lead author Sanjay Hakala, a postdoctoral fellow at the University of Freiburg, 
said in a statement. For their most recent experiment, LeBuffin and Hakala analyzed the social stomach contents of carpenter ants in both wild colonies and lab-raised colonies. Across their samples, they identified 519 proteins being passed around the ant colonies. 27 of those proteins were found in all their samples, regardless of the colony's age, the colony's location, or the individual ant's status. The workers seemed to be foraging for food, building that food into specific proteins, and then passing those proteins around, LaBeouf said. As a colony matures, more nutrient storage proteins, which act as a very concentrated food source, enter circulation, so older colonies have more of those proteins overall than younger colonies do. Often the adults in the ant colonies don't even need to eat. Instead, they sort of slowly break down these nutrient-storing proteins. Now, the role of individual ants in the colony can be determined by its social stomach contents, too, the team found. So-called nurse ants that care for young tend to have higher amounts of anti-aging proteins than other members of the colony, potentially to ensure that they survive the care for future generations. Again, it's all about the next generation, much like the honeybees, or even wasps for that matter. It's all about just continuing on. We now know that things are produced in certain individuals and they end up in other individuals, which is super exciting, LeBuff said. However, there are still many questions left to answer. For instance, the team found that foragers had higher concentrations of nutrients, nutrient-stored proteins, than nurses did, but the nurses produced those proteins faster. Now, I think by studying the systems like nutrient exchange in ants may help scientists better understand how metabolic labor is divided within individual organisms, as in between the cells that make up a body. Here, the ants pass things around in a way that we can easily access what they're sharing. So as disgusting as it is, there is a reason the ants vomit into each other's mouths. What a attention-grabbing headline. <laughs> You're listening to The S Factor. It's all about science. I'm your host, Chuck Shazer. Here on Cruising 92.1 WVLT, you can catch me here the first Saturday of the month at 1 o'clock. If you have any questions, comments, reach me, reach out to me. Email me. Email address is info at scienceanimated.net. That's info at scienceanimated.net. We'll be right back. Grandma got run over by a reindeer Walking home from our house Christmas Eve you can say there's no such thing as Santa But as for me and Grandpa, we believe She'd been drinking too much eggnog And we begged her not to go But she forgot her medication And she staggered out the door into the snow When we found her Christmas morning at the scene of the attack She had hoof prints on her forehead And incriminating claws marks on her back Grandma Welcome back to The S Factor. I'm your host Chuck Shazer of ScienceAnimated.net. Welcome aboard my starship. This is where you're going to hear all about the latest in science news the first Saturday of the month at 1 o'clock on Cruise 92.1 WVLT and your favorite podcasting service. Just type in the S Factor Podcast and you will find me there. The holiday season's right around the corner, so please support the show. 
by purchasing Science Animated Human Body 40-minute DVD. It's an action-adventure thrill ride into the human body. It's all animated. It's 40 minutes long. It's family-friendly. It is nationally loved from homeschoolers to teachers to maybe grandparents that just want to buy their grandkids something that's family-friendly, fun, educational, exciting, checks all the boxes. Everyone that purchases that loves it. Now, you can get it as either a DVD or a stream if you want to Watch it on different devices. If you're in a Netflix and things like that, or you like watching movies through Google, you'll love this. You purchase the stream. You have unlimited access to it on any device. And there's a holiday special going on right now. I have both the DVD and the stream marked down. So if you go to scienceanimated.net, you can purchase either one of those things. And I accept PayPal. And you don't have to have PayPal to to purchase the movie or the stream. PayPal will process normal credit cards as well. That's at no extra cost to you. So whether you wanna use PayPal or a normal credit card, you can do either one. Or if you just wanna support the show, there's a support us tab on the navigation bar as well. So let's get back to the science news here. UC Davis researchers develop ice cube that doesn't melt or grow mold. Researchers at the University of California, Davis, have developed a new type of cooling cube that could revolutionize how food is kept cold and shipped fresh without relying on ice or traditional cooling packs. These plastic-free jelly ice cubes do not melt, are compositable, and antimicrobial, and prevent cross-contamination. When ice melts, it's not reusable, said Gain Sun, a professor in the Department of Biological and Agricultural Engineering. We thought we could make a so-called solid ice to serve as a cooling medium and be reusable. The cooling cubes contain more than 90% water and other components to retain and stabilize the structure. They are soft to the touch like a gelatin dessert and change color depending on temperature. These reusable cubes can be designed or cut to any shape and size needed and you can use it for 13 hours for cooling. Collect it, rinse it with water, and put it in the freezer to freeze again for future use. A patent for the design and concept was filed in July. The researchers hope to eventually use recycled agricultural waste or byproduct as the coolant material. We want to make sure this is sustainable. Now the researchers began working on the coolant cubes after Wang saw the amount of ice used at the fish processing plants and the cross-contamination that meltwater could spread among products or down the drain. The amount of ice used by these fish processing sites is massive, Wang said. We need to control the pathogens. Sun also lamented mold found in the plastic ice packs used with school lunches for kids and frequently found in shipping packages. Early tests have shown the cubes can withstand up to 22 pounds without losing form. They can be reused a dozen times, just a quick wash with water or diluted bleach, and then disposed of in the trash or with yard waste. Now, the jelly ice cubes offer an alternative to traditional ice and could potentially reduce water consumption and environmental impact. They also offer stable temperatures to reduce food spoilage and could be ideal for meal prep companies, shipping businesses, and food producers who need to keep items cold. Now, the application could potentially reduce water consumption in the food supply chain and food waste by controlling microbial contaminants. The research was published in the American Chemical Society's journal, Sustainable Chemistry and Engineering. The USDA National Institute of Food and Agriculture 
awarded a $485,000 grant for the research and a proof of concept work began in January 2020. What do you think about that? Of course, fresh water is always a concern. We have actually very little fresh water on Earth when you compare it to the salt water, and we use it up like crazy. You know, whenever you turn on your faucet, we are truly fortunate to have that water available to us. So we want to conserve as much of that as possible. And when you think about how much ice is produced for several different things, it is incredible to think about the energy that goes into freezing that to keeping it frozen. And then once you use it, it's over. So this is a very interesting concept. Going to be kind of cool to follow along with this and see how, see how this all works out. Are you a person that enjoys seafood? Would you eat seafood that's grown in a lab? This from Scientific American. No bones, no scales, no eyeballs. Appetite grows for lab-grown seafood. In recent weeks, companies developing cell-based fish and shellfish have been drawing attention as they tout their offerings and expand their business globally. San Diego-based Blue Nalu will introduce lab-made finfish to Europe through a collaboration announced in September with British frozen food distributor Nomad Foods. The same month, Hong Kong-based Event Meats inked a deal with Singapore's Bioprocessing Technology Institute to improve the economics of its cultivated fish production. In June, WildType opened a tasting room adjacent to its San Francisco pilot plant, where it has been offering bits of lab-grown sushi-grade salmon. These moves reflect a growing interest in alternative biotech-derived fish. The need for sustainability has brought them to the fore. Of all the seafood consumed in the world, about half is raised in aquaculture and the other half is wild-caught. Some species of wild-caught fish may contain mercury, microplastics, and pollutants from environmental contamination. Stocks are being depleted by the impact of climate change on ecosystems and overfishing. The harvest of wild-caught seafood cannot be increased sustainably, and yet the global population and its demand for protein continue to grow. So we've got to come up with a different kind of way to address these challenges, says Kevin Main, Associate Vice President for Research at the Moat Marine Laboratory and Aquarium in Sarasota, Florida. I believe that cell-based seafood is going to be one of those opportunities. Hey, would you eat cell-based seafood? Would you eat seafood or... or beef for that matter, grown in a lab? I want to hear from you. Contact me, info at scienceanimated.net. I want to get your opinion on this. Now, cell-based seafood derived from commonly consumed fish, for example, salmon and tuna, or shellfish, is also known as cultured cellular or vitro seafood. It is derived from the tissue of an aquatic species, but has never been part of a live swimming animal. The flesh is made in a laboratory by harvesting cells from a number of donor fish or shellfish and culturing them in a bioreactor. For three-dimensional tissues like fillets, an edible biocompatible scaffold is needed to provide structure for cell growth and maturation. The resulting lab-made meat, a mix of mostly muscle and fat cells, tastes similar to the live-caught version, but has none of the animal waste, no bones, no scales, no eyeballs. Now think about people that are out there that maybe you're not crazy about killing a living thing and eating it. Maybe you're a vegetarian. Now, I would imagine that this would be quite attractive to many people. Even just, you know, if we don't have to kill something, 
Why? Why do it? If we can do this in a safe way, we'll take care of the environmental impact, plus we'll be able to feed our growing population. This is incredible. The strategy has already been applied to and commercialized in the vitro culture of other kinds of meat, including beef, chicken, and pork. Indeed, dozens of companies are developing cell-based terrestrial meat, and a few of them have racked up over $100 million each in venture capital. Chicken developed by EAT just became the first cultured meat to reach the market when Singapore's regulators in December 2020 approved its sale. Now, when we're talking about lab-grown meat, it reminds me of our aspirations and our determination for space travel, right? For humans to truly become, colonize our solar system, and maybe become interstellar, we have got to find a way. We need protein in our bodies, first of all. We actually need protein in us. It's very important. But there has to be a way for us to bring our, our culinary desires to the stars with us, to different star systems, even just in our own solar system. It's not practical to bring you know, cattle or chickens into space. Sounds kind of funny to say that. But it's not practical to do that. We can't have livestock on, I mean, you never see livestock on the Starship Enterprise, right? It's just not practical. I think they, the writers of that show knew it. There has to be a different way. And I think they may be on to something here. Now, currently, there are only about 14 companies in the world developing this kind of seafood. Now, the gap some biologists contend due to a research bias towards terrestrial species, it's amazing to me how far advanced the science is with land-based animals. I think it's because it's just easier. They're right beside you. You can access those resources. You can see what's going on really e easily. Whereas with seafood, everything's happening in the water. So you have to first understand how to make things work in the aquatic environment. Now, each seafood species has its own flavor, texture, and cell line that requires a unique set of parameters in which to grow. And developing cell lines from these species can prove elusive. Scientists start by harvesting adult or embryonic stem cells from the species of interest. They then look for cell lines that are self-renewing, stable from generation to generation, and can differentiate into muscle, fat, and connective tissue. The goal is to establish an immortalized cell line that continually regenerates on its own, eliminating the need to go back to the donor species. Now, the scale is up to produce enough biomass to eat can prove challenging. Scientists must coax the cells to grow in a higher volume, three-dimensional bioreactors in which cells are suspended in their growth environment. Once this is accomplished, researchers gradually scale up the operation to larger and larger bioreactors. The cellular meat produced in these bioreactors comes out soft like minced meat. If researchers want to give the meat the texture of a filet, they must coax the cells to combine and grow on edible scaffolds, layering this growth. Each step of the process presents its own set of challenges. Developing cell lines, for example, can consume years of a company's early R&D budget, says Jennifer Lammy, who leads the, the Good Food Institute's alternative seafood efforts. The first products will be unstructured, scaffold-free meat prepared in balls, which are common in Asian cuisines. Fish cells comprise half the product, while plant-based proteins and a small percentage of non-plant-based proteins make up the other half. The company has not yet held tastings of its product. So the first steps in this, it seems, according to this, you know, the first step is to, to mix it up. 
So you're not just getting the lab meat right off the bat, 100% lab meat. You're getting the lab meat mixed with almost like a filler in a sense, because it's hard to grow this stuff. So they're going to fill it with plant and non-plant based proteins. Now, no matter what the scale of the operation, the cost of producing cultured meat is astronomically high compared with that of conventional meat. Over 20,000 per kilogram at the high end by one estimate prepared by consulting firm CE Delft for the Good Food Institute. That won't change without a tremendous amount of R&D and approach to cell culture that differs radically from the way scientists have been growing cells for the past 70 years. The entire biofirm industry has been built on harvesting the proteins that cells produce and discarding the cells. The production of monoclonal antibodies is one example of that. In our system, the inverse is true. We want to learn how to concentrate large quantities of cells while keeping them viable for their onward journey to a scaffold. So it seems like they are a ways away from giving you, presenting to you at the supermarket, for example, a beautiful filet of salmon that looks like salmon, tastes like salmon, and it is a size that would be comparative to what you would find in an actual piece of salmon at the grocery store. Looks like they're a little ways away from this. It's incredibly expensive right now, so I don't think you have to worry about purchasing lab-grown seafood anytime soon. We'll say that. We're going to take a quick commercial break, and when we come back, self-replicating robots? You heard that right. Coming up next on The Yes Factor. Now, this next story sounds like it has jumped straight from the pages of your favorite sci-fi novel. Living robots made in a lab have found a new way to self-replicate, researchers say. Scientists say they've witnessed a never-before-seen type of replication in organic robots created in the lab using frog cells. Among other things, the findings could have implications for regenerative medicine. The discovery involves a xenobot, a simple programmable organism that is created by assembling stem cells in a petri dish and is described by a team of researchers from Tufts University, Harvard University, and the University of Vermont in a paper published this week in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. You can think about this like using the different cells as building blocks like you would with Lego or with Minecraft. Douglas Blackiston, a co-author of the study, tells NPR, 
The researchers hope that one day, these xenobots, described by the same team in a paper published nearly two years ago, could be programmed to perform useful functions such as finding cancer cells in the human body or trapping harmful microplastics in the ocean. The xenobots are made of cells taken from the African clawed frog, and the cells aren't genetically modified at all, but simply combined in different arrangements to produce the xenobots, said Blackiston, a senior scientist at the Allen Discovery Center at Tufts University and the Wyss Institute for Biology, Inspired Engineering at Harvard University. The xenobots propel themselves by using tiny hair-like structures known as cilia. They have a tendency to spin in a corkscrew fashion, which turns out to be pretty good for collecting piles of things such as other cells, Blackiston said. So the team used an artificial intelligence-driven computer simulation to see how they might manipulate the xenobots into shapes that would even be better at piling things up. Xenobots are collections of living cells and have no brain or digestive system, but in a real sense they can be programmed to corral other cells, as in this study, or eventually do other things. That's why the researchers think of them as tiny organic robots. The distinction between a robot and an organism is not nearly as sharp as we used to think it was, Levin told NPR. These creatures, they have properties of both. In fact, the idea of kinetic self-replication is not entirely new. It was first suggested in the late 1940s by mathematician John von Neumann. He envisioned machines that could choose from basic robot parts to produce copies of themselves. We found that if you just relax the assumption that the robot has to be made out of metal and circuit boards and electronics, and instead you use living cells, then von Neumann machines are actually kind of easy to make. But that concerns some scientists. Nita Farahani, a Duke University professor of law and philosophy, studies the ethics involved in new technologies and was not part of the Xenobot research. She says, any time we try to harness life, we should recognize its potential to go really poorly, she's told Smithsonian Magazine. Now, however, the researchers note that, like a hypothetical von Neumann machine, a Xenobot can't copy itself without raw material. As a result, there's virtually no chance they could escape the lab and begin reproducing on their own. All the researchers have to do is to remove the inventory of loose stem cells and there's nothing left from which to make new xenobots. What the researchers hope is that one day, these xenobots and their ability to self-replicate could be harnessed for the good of humanity. This is really a first step, but you could think down the line, Blackington says. If we could program these better, maybe they can selectively pick up and move specific cell types that we want or help us shape something that we're building in a dish for regenerative medicine. We think about how long it took for life to evolve on Earth. It's a very long story, but here in the dish, under the right conditions, we found a completely new form of replication in organisms. And discovering a new form of self-replication, he says, shows that maybe life is more expected than unexpected. What do you think about that? These robot xenobots? Send me a message. Email me. Info at scienceanimated.net. Send me a message to info at scienceanimated.net. I want to know what you think about this. Self-replicating robots. That is an incredible news story. I want to thank you for joining me today. You have been listening to the S-Factor Radio Show, which becomes a podcast after broadcast here on Cruising 92.1 WVLT. And if you're looking for a holiday gift, check out my website, scienceanimated.net. There is an awesome movie there on the human body. It's fun. It's exciting. It's high action, high adventure. It's a 40-minute DVD or a stream that you can stream on any device. 
They're both available at scienceanimated.net, or you can support the show by checking out the Support Us tab on the website as well. I want to wish everybody out there that celebrates it a very Merry Christmas. This is the two-year anniversary. This show right here is a two-year anniversary edition of the S-Factor right here on Cruising 92.1 WVLT. It has been an awesome ride. I look so forward to bringing you more science news, more incredible discoveries, whether it's terrestrial, celestial, whatever it is. I will be here to present that stuff to you. So if you can support the show, that would be fantastic. I will see you guys next year, which I can't believe is already next month, 2022. So happy holidays to you guys. It's been a pleasure as always. My name is Chuck Shazer. You have been listening to The S Factor, brought to you by ScienceAnimated.net, right here on Cruising 92.1 WVLT. Stay well and stay curious. See you next time. You have been listening to The S Factor, brought to you by ScienceAnimated.net on Cruising 92.1 WVLT. See you.